it's shit show time. I'm Lagan, and with Halloween around the corner, I'll be getting my gourd on. Because a pumpkin's a gourd? I'm Brian, and uh, day gonna have another weird boners episode. <laughs> I kind of predicted that. Uh-huh. I'm Christian, and I didn't prepare a pun. HP Lovecraft. HP Higher Purchase Agreement. This, this is what my mind is doing at the moment. HB sauce. I got a couple written down. Something about Miskatonic remote learning. I don't know. And I love to craft something. Go on, next person. Okay, to the two people who are still listening to this podcast after all that. <laughs> I'm Mike. And and you aren't you looking forward to all this gore being overdone? Ah, <laughs> oh, you gore to be kidding me. <laughs> Guys, fuck ye. Like, I mean, like, they're, they're not even good puns. Like, you can't put my random brain farts. Like, they're not even good puns. Just using the word Gordon. They gonna be better puns later in the episode. I guess I should introduce this particular shit show. As you know, we did a we did a podcast a couple of months ago about H.P. Lovecraft films that aren't actually based on H.P. Lovecraft works. One year to this day. Ooh. Was it one year to this day? Oh, wow. So one year later, we're having a look at uh, three actual adaptations of Lovecrafty stuff, but done by Stuart Gordon. And the main question I wanted to answer through the, this podcast is whether or not Stuart Gordon was like, oh, I love H.P. Lovecraft, but no one no one will watch an, a fateful adaptation because it will be boring and dry. Let's get lots of, like, like vaguely creepy violence towards women and booby ladies in here so people would actually watch. Or um, was, was Stuart Gordon, was, is that just what he would put in naturally? Like, without the knowing that that's what people would watch? Was, was his attempts to enliven these H.P. Lovecraft stories? Like, what angle was he coming from? So the three films we're doing today by Stuart Gordon are Reanimator, which is Stuart Gordon's one of his very first films as far as i can find out and then the very next year he did from beyond which was the adaptation of the very short story and then many years passed and then he came back and he revisited the whole thing with his buddy brian yosma which are i actually look up to it's, is that my pronouncing that name right because it's like oh wow it's basically him and his friend who does these in 2001 he came back with dagan and you're like, oh, wow, this film looks like it would have been better in the 80s, maybe. Mm. We might as well do them in chronological order, if anybody, unless anybody has any other idea. Okay, so who wants to introduce Reanimator? That's just dead silence. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's the pun. You did it. Without <laughs> even thinking about a pun, did I do one? Yeah. Whoop. There it is, the smartest thing I've ever done, and I didn't even realize I was doing it. I'll I'll do I'll do Reanimator. It's everybody knows it already. It's it's Reanimator, and it's about uh, pfft, uh Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West makes a serum that reanimates people with science magic, and then uh, uh evil doctor boss uh co-opts it and. Gets his head cut off and does some weird shit. There's not a whole lot to it. It's really just like 
doctor adventures about reanimating corpses and how it goes haywire. The only thing, Umbridge, I would take with your synopsis is it is it kind of makes it sound like Jeffrey Coombs is a good guy that falls victim to oh, an no, evil doctor. Oh, no, he's not. No, he's also an asshole. One of my fa- favorite parts of the film is when does the uh, t- which asshole is going to be the biggest asshole fight briefly in the basement. Oh, I like the first one where it's their, their meet cute between um, uh, Herbert West and who is the the boss doctor guy that actor i don't know he's familiar looking though uh, or the character david gale as dr carl hill dr hill that's right dr west and dr hill he's a familiar looking dude he is before we get any further has anyone else read the, the actual story or yes it's going to be very hard obviously to talk about these and not get mike's encyclopedic knowledge on hp lovecraft anyway and that's good yeah, but that would be like five hours of podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, but just there's a simple formula. If you see a pair of boobs, that probably wasn't in the short story. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I get that. But but also it's going to be for me, the, the interesting part for me as well, and Mike touched on it, is it's going to be impossible not to talk about Stuart Gordon. This is the first time we've done a trilogy of movies all from the same director. Mm. And who is he? What is he? And what has he done? And the gross man-childish sleaze in these movies as mike said is it just a way to uh, inject life into hp lovecraft or is it Stuart gordon thing and uh, if you look at the other movies he, he's done it's like well, you're i'm kind of leaning more towards maybe it was just he felt this was the way to go with these i was looking at a couple of interviews with Stuart gordon and from what i can gather kind of felt like the crew was just kind of seeing what they could get away with in their movies kind of pushing the boundaries for shock value in that way so that might line up with the just getting eyeballs on it theory that makes sense yeah i I, sure gordon as well if you look up the if you go to his wikipedia page it focuses very heavily on his pre-film experimental theater stuff and it's called experimental theater but it was basically just shock value stuff he did one called the game show where he would have plants in the audience and it was like saw like he would lock the doors of the the this thing and would say like this show is about challenging apathy and we're going to get a reaction out of you oh like escape room 2 tournament of champions it was like an escape room that nobody knew they were signed up to play an escape room (laughs) and then he'd have plants in the audience and he would like take them up on stage and pretend to torture them and uh, rape them and things how do you torture plants no, plant You people. know what I mean. You know what I mean. Brian, he's being facetious. Got him. Every performance of this, the game show would end in the audience rioting and breaking out of the theater. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I think shock value is really what he was. He was like, oh, it's easy to get eyes on you as long as you go for shock value. I mean, we probably have him to thank for some of H.P. Lovecraft being in the popular zeitgeist, you know? Yeah, probably, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's a whole separate conversation about the minutiae and how H.P. Lovecraft became so mainstream in the last 10 years, really, 15 years. Before that, it was just obscure literature. Well, I mean, this was 85. So that was start of the snowball. So, like, four, almost 40 years. Yeah. But it's a snowball that's been building for 40 years of, like, Lovecraft and Cthulhu are now tired memes, whereas before they were extremely obscure things, you know? Mm -hmm. 
we all want to talk about Stuart and Gordon, but I guess we should talk about the movies individually. I know, but as I said, there'll definitely be a parallel line running alongside the movies. Yes, and especially when you watch three of them and you start to notice the things that are similar about them that aren't in the short stories. Yeah, because uh, Stuart Gordon did some other movies that also had the basically the same cast as this. I mean, the the leading man is almost is the same in two of the films. Uh, and the leading lady. That's right, and the leading lady. Yeah, Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. I could not find out where he dug up Jeffrey Combs. I did not find that piece of information because, yeah, Jeffrey Combs is like Stuart Gordon's Bruce, Sam Raimi's Bruce Campbell or whatever. Yeah. Jeffrey Combs has a great face. I like his performance in this. I mean, he's a character actor, you know, but he does the weird little nervous guy who's very smart but really unlikable, like an asshole, you know? Yeah, the hubris, arrogant, mad scientist. But in a kind of, you know, all of these films are kind of like over the top and over, like they're schlocky B-movies and I, like, enjoy them as that, you know? So, Herbert West comes to a a hospital in uh, Arkham. Right? It's a, the Miskatonic University's learning hospital, I think, is supposed to be the thing. In the original short story, okay. he's just a medical student. So he would still mm-hmm. be, I don't, I don't, I can't remember the fictional Arkham, whether or not it's a learning, it's got to be a learning hospital, like Arkham Hospital or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, it's not like there's a crazy distinction between a, a learning hospital and a university or whatever. Actual hospital. Yeah, like they, they all do medical procedures, so it's fine. But the weird thing is Jeffrey Coombs' character, Herbert West, seems to already be like his roommate guy seems to be a trainee doctor mm-hmm. and he's going out with the, the dean's daughter yeah the dean's daughter but like herbert west is a bit more mysterious it's more like he's a adult man who's already a doctor who's coming to learn even more stuff or something he does repeatedly introduce himself as mr herbert west oh okay so he's not a doctor yet he is not quite a doctor and that's because he kind of gets expelled out of germany yeah he gets deported from germany for killing uh, an actual doctor with his special serum so i don't think that's he killed him i think it's the doctor had a heart attack when the medical student guy signed up in the short story signed up with herbert west it was like a genuine scientific like oh we can beat death we can solve the mysteries of life and all of that and then as it went on Herbert West goes from this slightly kooky guy who has ideas about beating life and death to like being a full on monster. And I think they try to repeat mm. that ish here where it's like, oh, yes, he wants to reanimate the dead. But then as it goes on, the lengths he's willing to go to to reanimate the dead get to the point where they actively include killing people, you know? Yes. What year was the original short story written in about? Oh, like the mid-twenties? H.P. Lovecraft hated it, by the way. 1927? It was a syndicated story, which was not his usual format. And was was it a contemporary story? Was it a story set in 1920s? Yes. Well, I think it might have been set like plus or minus 10 years. Well, minus 10 years, because he references those two guys going off to fight in World War One. Okay. And like how that gave Herbert West even more ammo to experiment with. And then they come back and they have the Spanish. It talks about the Spanish flu as well. And how speaking of pandemics and how the Spanish flu gave Herbert West a lot of raw materials for working with. So it was probably set like 10 
like five to ten years before the story was actually published. I'm just wondering around that time, like when was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein written? Uh, 1880s? Way before. And so it is continuing on the history of the reanimated dead through science. It's very much like a like a Frankenstein type story. Yeah, I'm just wondering, was there a period in literature where that was just as, as a result of World War One or something, where it was just in vogue, the obsession with bringing the dead back to life. Frankenstein, the original book, was 1818. We're talking 100 years, wow. 1818? Jesus, I got my eight in the wrong decimal. That is an interesting question, Christian, and I don't know, but H.P. Lovecraft, as much as I love him, was a weird kind of incel shut-in type dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't surprise... Like, like, a lot of his stuff is responding to like very heady, vast, cosmic questions because... Not to denigrate him, but heady, vast, cosmic questions are what you get when you don't want to inter- engage with like the actual world. So I can't imagine that he wrote a political story, like a story that was responding to the actual situation of the time, because he was a weirdo shut-in, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose the thing that was going through my mind was, you know, in wor- around World War One, anyway, you know, you had the emergence of seances and Ouija boards and life after death. And was there just maybe a period in literature when it was a thing? Oh, I'm sure there was I mean it wouldn't surprise me I'm just it wouldn't also wouldn't surprise me to learn that H.P. Lovecraft was like what are the commons doing as he sticks his finger through the blinds to peek outside it's it's funny we have to be careful not to have a conversation about H.P. Lovecraft either but yeah like I've only read some H.P. Lovecraft and it's just the whole cosmic uh, amorphous horror sometimes I feel oh man is that just a cop-out like is it just a cop-out for not wanting to write something that has more legs Legs in the sense of structure and shape. And Maybe tentacles. I'm just, I'm just throwing it at t- tentacles. Just throwing it like is like Mike. As somebody who's read is read it in an encyclopedic manner. Is there kind of a uh, a bit of a cop out there sometimes? Well, this this is before we get too derailed talking about H.P. Lovecraft. I think weirdly enough, part of that, and this is going to make everybody angry, is the fact that he's writing about these big cosmic scale things that don't actually relate down to a human level is probably why nerds can relate to it more. You know, so Stephen King is a popular writer and he but like when you read his book now, he's writing about like alcoholic fathers with their on their second wife or whatever. And it's like your average nerd doesn't really relate to that. But you pick up H.P. Lovecraft and he's writing about like some dude who's thinking about deep thoughts about space and time. Nerds respond to the fact that he do- didn't have a lot of life experience. He writes horror for people who don't have a lot of life experience. If you're saying that he didn't particularly like this one, it might make sense because this one is dealt with like, oh, here's this one idea, this one scientific idea, and the fallout from it. Yes, and the and the fallout for it is very gory. The direct. Like he didn't like this story, but it's like a lot of fun if you read it. It's like a very the, the short story itself. Well, it's a series of short stories, like Brian was saying. It's like a bunch of little... It was published weekly across a bunch of magazines. Herbert West gets up to some sort of adventure and some gory nonsense happens. One of the lines from the short story that didn't make it into any of the films that I thought is like is often the quoted line is, Herbert West, most of his experiments ended with a revolver. <laughs> and like that line didn't make it anywhere into the film. And I was ah, they should have squeezed that in somewhere. That's a good line, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's even a good tagline for the movie. All right, so Reanimator, the movie by Stuart Gordon, not H.P. Lovecraft's. Uh, there's also Bride of Reanimator, which I tried to watch, and uh, it it uh, gets straight up in your face. 
HP Lovecraft's Bride of Reanimator. <laughs> Not a thing. That's the title card. That's the other thing I wanted to bring up because it's common across all three of these movies. When you watch them, it goes, HP Lovecraft's name of yeah. movie. <laughs> which needs credence to me that Stuart Gordon's purpose with these films was he was trying to get people jazzed about H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. You know? Yeah. That these films are him saying, like, I love H.P. Lovecraft. I want you to hate, love H.P. Lovecraft. But if I have to put boobs and stuff in here in order to make that happen, I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> all, all of these movies gave me that. Mike, were you saying that Stuart Gordon had to, like, go to great lengths to actually get the text for for one of these was it was it reanimator so i listened to a podcast a while ago i think it was the hb lovecraft literary podcast and i hey no free advertising yeah everyone knows that one and i am pretty sure it was either Stuart gordon himself or it was a comrade and i may be wrong about this and we'll get angry emails from our three fans we have three now jesus moving up the time when he was trying to make the film the only way to get a copy of the the original story or the time when he was thinking about making the film which was probably a couple of years previous to that he had to go to a public library on a bus and he had to photocopy this story out of crinkling old magazines. So it went from an obscure story of H.P. Lovecraft that H.P. Lovecraft himself didn't like to probably one of his best-known stories because of the film. It's it's really just like a very, very tight-knit a couple people, a couple characters um, trying to do one thing. There's not a whole lot of sets where it's filmed or there's no like traveling in the movie or whatever it's really just they break into a morgue um guarded by the world's worst security guard who goes off and gets what sandwiches all the time uh yes that was kind of funny <laughs> do we do we have the name of the main character in the book the guy who's not herbert west the uh, the medical student dan kane uh played by bruce abbott dan so dan is the medical student and it starts with him failing to resuscitate some lady in the in the learning hospital. Oh, yeah. And then Herbert West starts at Arkham and there's there's hints and whispers that he's not a great guy and he's kind of weird. And then Dan needs a roommate to because his for his house and who shows up to take the position of roommate but Herbert West and his girlfriend is like maybe maybe someone else this guy is creepy as fuck. And Dan's mm -hmm. like, well, I need the money and, like, stuff. And, like, I'm going to ignore all the red flags. And he hasn't been that weird up until that point. He's been arrogant and kind of a dick. But he hasn't been, like, overtly creepy in a way where you'd be like, I need to call the police. Oh, yeah. And Herbert West it, it shows a snippet of them at class. And he establishes that he thinks that the doctor who's teaching, whose name we've already said, that like the, the guy who's turn, going to turn out to be one of the main antagonists. Dr. Hill. Breaking pencils, yes. Oh yeah, the breaking pencils. That's what I was trying to get to 20 minutes ago with their meat cue. Herbert West thinks Dr. Hill is full of nonsense about how long someone can survive after death and it's all medieval thinking and we can, we can bring back the dead and stuff. Um, Dan has a cat. And the girlfriend, I can't remember why she goes wandering, but she finds the cat dead in Herbert West's fridge in his room, along with glow bottles of the glowing green stuff. Mm. And that's our very first, like, oh boy, Dan, you gotta get rid of this dude. Yeah, because he makes up an elaborate lie, like, oh, the cat got stuck in the trash, and I didn't want to you know, bring it to work or whatever, or tell you your cat's dead and shit. 
<laughs> it's like, no, man. No, he said he found it dead outside, and 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 who knows? That might have been true. We don't find out if it's true or not. Yeah, nobody does that though. But this is the thing: Herbert West, da- Jeffrey Coombs is playing him as such a weirdo. You're like, maybe this weird exchange student from Germany did find a dead cat outside and put it in a fridge because he couldn't, didn't have enough time to deal with it because he seems like an inhuman dude that doesn't understand human emotions. I mean, he's believable in a lot of his scenes where he's, the lines are actually fucking bananas and just, like, pants-shittingly crazy. Oh no, this is what I'm saying. Jeffrey Coombs is doing... A great job yeah. as a character actor. Jeffrey Coombs is doing a great job of portraying this dude who is broken in some way. Like, he's obviously smart, mm-hmm. but he just doesn't understand things that should upset people, you know? And that's his character. Is like he's, And it's weird because he wants to bring people back to life, which sounds like a lofty and noble goal. You might expect someone who's passionate about living and life and stuff. But instead, he's just like a little creepy little weirdo, you know? It's not necessarily bringing people back to life. It's defeating death. That is a slightly important distinction. It's like overcoming this scientific obstacle. Yeah. I'm just saying the other reading could be that he is so bent on doing that. That it's like, oh, all that stuff doesn't matter as much. All the social niceties are just getting in the way of me achieving this thing. Yeah. And you are slowing me down mm-hmm. yeah. by worrying about whether or not I killed your cat. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was reading a, a other part of that interview um, because the girlfriend notices that the cat hadn't been bugging them. Um, and I think they do a good job of like establishing a relationship between the two not Herbert West characters um, because Stuart Gordon wanted the audience to relate to, sympathize, like any combination of those things with these characters because he was responding to a lot of horror movies where it's just whoever getting axed off, you know, one after the other. Yeah. Yeah. Even though um, Herbert West is weird, you really care about what he's got going on. And there's a great, great bit, apparently, in one of the um, movie openings, a guy stood up and went, use the juice on her! And he's like, ah, yes, I have done it. They care about what's happening. (laughs) All right, there you go. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this, this movie, it's cartoonish yeah it's it's schlocky but um it's popular for a reason it's not the first time i've heard quite a few people describe it as a cartoon they made a cartoon yeah yeah you could easily level that as a criticism but like we all appreciate the practical effects however flawed they are in this movie and they're definitely flawed in parts we can all appreciate them you know for the trying like the cat is fucking ridiculous oh yeah the cat fight (laughs) (laughs) oh no yeah dan wakes up to the cat screaming and he goes down to the basement and herbert west has brought the cat back but it's vicious and violent and they have a very long very funny charming fight with a sock puppet and then um and then like there's the crushed cat and then they bring it back to life again again with the the juice, I meant to look up. It looks like they emptied a bunch of glow sticks into syringes. Probably highlighter. If you put a highlighter in water, then it does that same thing. Well, I don't know, but it's like bright, luminous. Uh, if you crack open a glow stick, it'll be dead in like three minutes. Yeah, but you, then you have loads. Of, they mixed uh, glow sticks with KY jelly for the blood in Predator. Oh, yeah, maybe if you put it in something. But like it could have been highlighter and, and water. I, I don't know, but like it's clearly looks like something that should not be injected into anything it's very cartoony like do not inject so dan's on board he sees he sees his cat being brought to back to life and he no longer thinks that uh, jeffrey coombs is a kook 
He thinks that Herbert West, he's, he's on to something. He knows he's got an important discovery. And they try to talk to the guy in charge of the hospital, the dean, the, the father of his daughter. And that goes poorly. So Dan decides to sneak Herbert West into the morgue past the world's worst security guard. Oh, he's so bad. And then that gives us an excuse for more gore effects because they bring back a random corpse that immediately starts screaming. And this is the, I think, the difference between the, the short story and the this thing is the excessive gore and the violence and stuff was in the short story towards the end. But the first couple of times they brought people back to life like there was a guy who just screamed and then fell dead again you know and stuff like that and mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. he kind of retcons his own story towards the end of his story because he was literally making it up as he went along that all these failed experiments come back as an undead army that none of them are actually dead like dead dead they were all still undead but this guy is clearly undead now he like breaks a door down and he winds up killing the um dean the, the the Dan's girlfriend's Dan's girlfriend's dad, the Dean, but because he's freshly dead, Herbert West brings him back to life and he's more successful, but still not quite successful. Yep. They realize that they need freshly dead corpses to have the best reanimation results. That's the stinger that's in the actual short story as well, is like Herbert West, he brings something back to life and it goes all bananas. Mm -hmm. And that's like the, the reoccurring punchline is like he'll be covered in gore with a smoking revolver and he'll go, not fresh enough, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that's like a like they uh, they insert that a couple of like whenever Herbert West fucks up, he doesn't blame himself. He blames the freshness of the corpse. And this is why he turns murderous, because he's like, well, what's the freshest corpse I can get? One that I kill. So Dr. Hill finds out that Herbert West has this uh reanimation juice and tracks him down to their basement lab and uh extorts and blackmails him and is like i'm taking this and uh you will be my assistant and i will achieve greatness and you will get no recognition for this that's what he tells herbert west herbert west is like all right fine let me show you and you know puts puts some of the juice uh in a microscope with some dead cat cells and while Dr. Hill is staring into this, he grabs Herbert West, grabs the fucking shovel, clocks him in the back of the head, and then chops his head off. It's so great. I mean, it's as obviously these special effects obviously look very silly, but they're so much fun, you know? It's so much fun. And um, and you may think that like a head and a body being brought back to life are ridiculous things added by the film, but no, it was slightly different. It was a, it was an officer in the um in the World War One segment of the the original short story. There was an officer whose head got blown off by something, and Herbert West brought back the body and the head separately because he was <laughs> yep. becoming convinced that his goo. He was also trying to investigate where the seat of consciousness was. And he had a theory that we all think it's in the brain, but, you know, who knows? And so he was bringing back just arms 
and just like in, like individual like limbs and stitching limbs together oddly and bringing those things back together. And so yeah, so the headless body that carries around a head that talks is in the short story. That's like the main villain, right? He becomes like the zombie lord in the in the original short story. This is one of those things of like, oh, you're clearly br- brilliant, but you do you are still dense sometimes. <laughs> Up to this point, we have only seen the things that he brings back turn violent. And he's like, oh, let me just bring back this body and just turn my back to it real quick. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really like Looney Tunes ass moment where it's like, oh, my God, this is something Wiley Coyote would do. Mm. It's way over the top at this point because he takes Dr. Hill's head, puts it on one of those old timey when people used to use paper used to get a spike that you'd put notes on Uh, maybe seen them at restaurants or whatever but i'm not sure that they're they exist too much anymore Wamps it down puts the head on the spike injects it uh injects the body the body comes and knocks out herbert west from behind takes the head so they go back to the hospital and start juicing up the tray with blood (laughs) blood bags and shit yeah no it's great (laughs) and oh my god so while all of this is happening with herbert west dr hill has been doing his own mad science where he has invented a type of lobotomy procedure with a laser scalpel that's not invasive which ties to the zombie lord um portion of the short story because after uh headless dr hill regains whatever cohesion between mind and body there is in this magic nonsense uh he starts doing that procedure on the failed reanimated corpses well i mean i guess they weren't failed but the violent ones to control them in the most shocking part of this entire film is he has uh the the dad the dean of the school who who comes back as like a mumbling insane person but doesn't look dean halsey dean halsey but he doesn't look like a zombie so that's why he got to do the lobotomy to him and he's been creeping on this daughter character as well like he's been creeping on dan's girlfriend he's like oh you're all alone now i'll look after you so he's creepy as fuck before turning full zombie and then so he uses his zombie mind control powers to send the dad to the uh, house of the daughter just like bring me your daughter or whatever it is um and dan happens to be there trying to apologize to the daughter when zombie dad bursts in and knocks out dan and steals the daughter and then herbert west wakes up and somehow but they know that they have to go rescue the daughter and then this leads to like the grossest scene in the entire the scene movie but it's the scene that is why everybody remembers the film and they're like the scene where the thing the, with the growth the guy the head got head yeah trigger warning <laughs> right now if we get into it it is really fucking it's uncomfortable to say the least yeah and it's but but like a lot of the movies that we watch and i suppose this is where i i i kind of fell out of love with the movie it just it just ain't right and it's where i fell out of love with the movie and it's amazing how like even as a teenager even as a 25 year old even maybe as a 30 year old 
you watch it and you kind of go, ah, that's the way they made movies at the time. But you watch it now and you go, oh, that's not all right. Yeah, it was probably never all right, but it was there for shock value. You know, somebody would call it just the usual toxic masculinity that you get in these movies. And it's not just Stuart Gordon who's guilty of that. I mean, we've watched lots of movies with that type of flavor in it. What was what was the thing you were exact wording, Lagan, about you were trying to look into this and they were just trying to see what they could get away with? Yeah, it wasn't a direct quote. I was just kind of par paraphrasing. They didn't expect to get away with this. <laughs> they were aiming for an R rating and then they the guys came back and were like, there's no way you're getting an R rating. This is going to have to be released non-rated. And that ended up kind of working for the film is that they really went out on this limb for this scene. And it's been what has persisted it's funny a lot, a lot of movies of that period though um the cronenbergs and that the other the other director who clearly has deep sexual repressions like those guys a lot of their movies uh as you say at that time came out x-rated or unrated for stuff like that there was the whole panic moral panic around censorship even some people have pointed out that uh, you know the scene we're referring to it kind of knew when to cut kind of knew when to stop yeah we haven't even mentioned what happens but also <laughs> I, through the entire thing it was an uncomfortable setting it was very aware of what it was doing because dr hill was a monster and had already his character was already toxic from before he got his head chopped off and reanimated so it knew that it was making the bad people do bad things to good people and was being cartoonishly over the top with this scene of sexual assault. I do know that they had to cycle through an actress because the first actress who read the scene was like, nope, I'm good. Yeah. The second actress was like, you get you get eight seconds. You get eight seconds of me being nude and then we're cutting. It's funny though, like you think of Galaxy of Terror and there's lots of examples like that or even The Wicker Man where mm. the lead actress went, nope, and <laughs> she was either recast or they used a body double. Like the speculation about why Stuart Gordon put in this stuff, for B-movies it was kind of the order of the day. In a lot of instances, it was just the order of the day. I wonder then, is it just that more people saw this than the average B-movie? Because this scene of the disembodied head of the uh, Dr. Hill licking the naked bound lady, I think it cuts away just, just as... Just before he, as I said, like you said, the head got hit. He didn't. He, he was about to, and then it, it, the scene he's interrupted. The heroes burst in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our, our heroes burst. Dan's a hero, but Herbert West is... <laughs> everything that's happened it's his fault yeah he's a monster <laughs> yeah but the interesting thing about that is like that might have been a writing decision which shows intent we've watched films on this podcast that didn't have intent yeah we're just yeah. being gross disgusting scenes where yeah it was clear that the directors were just like oh we'll get some naked ladies in there it'll, it'll raise the production value of our film and they didn't really care about it, whereas in this, it, yeah, like you're saying, it's very clear that they knew they were filming a disgusting, gross scene, I think, that wasn't pleasant to watch. That's the only thing that, like, as I said, I definitely, it's a movie I'm not okay with anymore, but the layer you're describing elevates it away from Roger Corman. Just saying, give, give me the space monster doing the gross thing, I want that. It elevates it away from something like Galaxy of Terror where that's the difference with Galaxy of Terror is something like that. They went back and shot that terrible scene to try and sell the movie. Yeah. Mm. 
this was in the script obviously and it's as though the, the writer knew where to place it and as I say how to uh, how to frame it and everything but it's still it's still really it's still it's still yeah it's still whoa ah Jesus like you know yeah. we don't often do trigger wordings on the show but that one might be too much for it. yeah I, I I had never that was the first time I had seen that scene <laughs> I had I had known Reanimator and I'd seen parts of it, but I never really cared enough about it to like. I'd, I'd go read the story instead. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm, I'm glad I got to share that with you, Brian. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was fine. It felt like everybody involved with creating this very disgusting scene was okay with it on some level. That's the thing, yeah. And that makes it mostly okay. <laughs> the heroes burst in and they have a big fight with all the zombies and they Dan. Well, oh, here's the interesting part, because th this was the one like, oh, the film starts as it ends or ends as it starts is uh, Herbert West. There's a big showdown, a big brawl, basically, in the morgue. Dan rescues the lady while Herbert West has a big duel with um, the Dr. Hill monsters. And Dan and girlfriend nearly escape, but then girlfriend gets strangled. And you're like, oh, that's a bit cheap and nasty. But it that happens... So it can end with the scene Lagan was talking about where somebody in the audience leaps up and shouts, Give her the juice! <laughs> <laughs> and so the film starts with Dan failing to bring a naked lady back to life. And the film ends with Dan maybe successfully bringing a naked lady back to life. Yeah, a fun B-movie with lots of hokey effects and one very uncomfortable scene. <laughs> <laughs> From Beyond also has a lot of... I would say hokier effects. This one, uh, I think there was a bigger budget. Yeah, yeah, um, but man, is it... Well, at least for effects, they didn't really have a very big housing budget. Yes, very big housing budget. Very. Good. I see what you did there, yes, Brian. I see what he did as well. Mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. I'll do... Dagan, do you want to take this one and I'll do da or Dagon? Is that, is that all right? Lagan should do Dagan. Lagan shouldn't introduce Dagan. Yeah, no, that, that'd be too silly. <laughs> We got Jeffrey Coombs back, but instead of him being the mad scientist, he's the assistant to the mad scientist with Dr. Edward Pretorius, which is quite the name, mm. who is has basically been searching into a different sense, a different sight by stimulating his pineal gland. Lagan, it's pronounced pineal, pineal. not pineal, Pinafore. you pervert. His pea gland. Yeah. <laughs> you know, similar to, oh, reanimating dead tissue, that's something that, that's a science thing that could maybe happen. This is like, oh, we're stimulating a gland in someone's brain, something that could maybe happen. But it turns out that there's a whole bunch of stuff that you don't see that's all around you, that you can only see when you <laughs> stimulate this gland enough. They're stimulating the horny gland. Mike, was that in the original story? Absolutely not, right? So... In the short story, it's actually, uh, I, I, uh, sometimes H.P. Lovecraft is hard going and I w wouldn't recommend a lot of his stories for casual readers, but From Beyond, the short story, is extremely short. It's basically that very first intro scene we see in the film, you know? Like, there's some more dialogue and exposition, like a guy is building a machine in a house and then some, he calls his buddy, he's like, come to my house uh, uh, and look at the machine, crazy machine I've built. And it's basically just the intro before the stinger, before the film even begins, is the pre-titled sequence is the actual short story. And it's very short. And I would actually recommend people read that if they want to, to sample Lovecraft without like signing up for a big thing. 
so yes, there is, I can't remember, was it pineal or pituitary gland in the short story, but like, it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, nobody who writes about that kind of shit actually knows what they're talking about. They wanted the characters to be horny, so they made it the horny gland. Yeah. So Lovecraft was one of the his enduring like quirkinesses is he would look at modern science in the day and write horror stories about that modern science. So Reanimator wasn't really like that because, like, trying to bring people back from being dead, as we've just as we heard, goes back to eighteen eighteen with Frankenstein, you know. But this was about the all the stuff about other dimensions that humans can't perceive. So that was entering the world of physics and maths, and the idea that these places were like physical realms where creatures might live and stuff. All of that was floating around the zeitgeist. And that was what Lovecraft, he was like, oh, he liked writing science fiction horror stories. And that's what this, this little one was. But yeah, basically, it's very short. A guy builds a weird machine. It has nothing to do with horniness, but it does have to do with, like, enhanced perceptions and stuff. So the weird thing about this this From Beyond film is it does seem to be stealing a lot of bits and pieces from Hellraiser. You know, with like the horniness and altered, like a guy in an attic building a machine to see different dimensions. But then when you go and look it up, Hellraiser, the film, was made after this, you know? It's also, I mean, a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, original stories, were um, from this emergent field of science called psychology. You may have heard of it. Um, This story in particular has a lot of the pseudoscience of the mind sort of stuff where it's like well we just discovered a new thing that this part of the body does this part of the neuroendocrine system yeah but i think the original machine in the short story i can't remember was it like about any of that or was it just he built a resonator machine that could see different dimensions in any case that sort of trope has been around for as long as there's been um science you know oh i'm no i was i was specifically talking about particulars in this film the dr pretorius wears a creepy bathrobe and he has a bdsm chamber and he has an attic where he's trying to get new types of horninesses and all of that seems to me to match up very closely with hellraiser but hellraiser hadn't come out yet so yeah the experiment goes sideways we we learned that dr pretorius was trying to expand his vision but as the film goes along we learned that it's like oh no he had sexual hang-ups he was trying to increase his sexual experiences because he was impotent yeah so and and then hellraiser just to clarify what you're talking about the the evil brother goes off looking he he can't get sated with normal sex so he goes looking for the sexy puzzle box and it is sexy boxes are the sexiest so it's both like both things happening in the film are driven by men's pursuit of better weirder sex yeah yeah and i just think it's odd i didn't notice it the first time i watched this film but yeah so basically they open a portal to an awful place as a result of his sex machine yeah (laughs) that's basically the movie (laughs) so there's an accident dr pretorius disappears jeffrey combs uh goes to an insane asylum where um barbara crampton comes in as a different character and takes him back to the house because she's like well i i want to see what happens and they take a big ex-football player cop with them and they all have a slumber party bubba brownlee bubba brownlee i was trying to remember his name and i was like oh boy 
Bubba Brownlee. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a little rough. That's like you're trying to come up with the name for the big, big, huge, tough black cop. To be fair, that definitely sounds like a football player's name. It does. It feels like the name of a character in a black station film. Absolutely. Absolutely does. It feels like Blackula or the Blunchback of Blotcher Blake. Black Dynamite. If a black person is genuinely called Bubba Brownlee, fine. <laughs> yeah. But if you're white Stuart Gordon <laughs> yeah, and you're exactly. coming up with names for black characters and you say Bubba Brownlee, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't. Maybe he was like, oh, I grew up with a guy called Bubba Brownlee and I thought it was a cool name. No. <laughs> It doesn't feel right. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so they go have a sexy uh, sixth slumber party. dimension slumber party. He's trying to prove his innocence, and the only way to do that, apparently, is to recreate the experiment, which is kind of a bonkers logic line. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Yes, that is bonkers, right? But we have the other actress, who was Stuart Gordon's wife at the time, I think, who's like, I know you, Dr. Other Lady. You only exploit people for new discoveries. She's an aspiring mad scientist instead of an actual mad scientist. She's an aspiring mad scientist, and she's like Dr. Hill from the other film. She's hoping to like uh, cash in on some of this mad science for herself. And I think that's her downfall as a character or whatever. Jeffrey Coombs is like rebuilding this machine is like a terrible idea. It's the worst. The what is it called? Quantum resonator? I don't know. It's the resonator for sure. I'm not sure what the, the prefix is on it, but the res the resonator 100% is what it's called. It's a cool prop in this thing. It looks like a big 80s mad science machine. In the H.P. Lovecraft story, I think it like fit on a table, <laughs> like the machine. You know, it was very smaller. But like, I think you're supposed to believe that she's doing this bad idea because she wants to cash in she wants some of the prestige of this mad science for herself was my reading of it it's that and she actually wants to help i think anyway they go repair the resonator um they turn it on well they turn it on and they see they see the crazy things they all get horny oh yeah fans start blowing purple light starts going everywhere um, they start seeing flying eels. Jellyfish. And then they see... Dr. Pretorius. Dr. Pretorius, but they see, what, half of him? Like, he's all moldy. If there was only half of him, it would be Os Oscar Pretorius. What? There's a joke that didn't land. <laughs> <laughs> that was... <laughs> God damn it. Well, because, like, Oscar the Grouch, you only see the half that comes out of the trash can? No, Oscar Pretorius, the guy with no legs who murdered his wife. <laughs> No. Is that a no. tumbleweed nope. I see? <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, I'll have to look that up after this. Christian, I like I liked I liked your joke. I liked Anyway, uh Dr. Pretorius comes out of the ether. And he's all gooey. He's all slimy and weird. Yeah, he's all slimy and gushy. Let me show you the sights. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. He does the pinhead stuff. The part we didn't mention is Dr. Hill's body was found headless. Like something had bitten his head off. Pretorius. Uh, yeah, Pretorius's body was found headless, which I think is pretty much how the short story ends. But it in eating its his head, the implication is this amoebic like creature has basically assumed. Like this is where we get into philosophical things. Uh, either the amoeba type creature has stolen his consciousness and just thinks it's Oscar Pretorius now. Not Oscar Pretorius, the other one, Doctor Pretorius, <laughs> or or Doctor Pretorius, his consciousness did manage to bully its way to the top of this amoeba, 
and this this amoeba now actually is Olympic Paral- Paralympian Oscar Pretorius. <laughs> I do enjoy that this actor pretty much just shows up occasionally and spouts one-liners. Like, that was his job for the entire movie, was just being a little creepy and, and talking in, like, a chocolatey smooth voice. He has a great voice. Yeah, I don't think it was super creepy. I mean, you know, he just... He was into BDSM and some bondage shit. And that's, I mean, I guess for the 80s, it was a little crazy. But I mean, now it's fine. But now he wants to, he wants to have non-consensual, fourth dimensional weird He wants sex. to mind fuck people. <laughs> he wants to mind fuck people's pineal glands. Give them a pineal pounding. He also gets to do the, uh, the title drop. I didn't die. I came from, from beyond. Beyond. Yeah, they dropped that a couple of times. Anyways, so they keep uh, turning the fucking resonator on and off and on and off because now they're horn junkies. At least one of the times it turns itself on. Yeah, each time they turn it on, Pretorius gets closer to, or what has become of Pretorius, gets closer to breaching back into our reality. So at a point, he magically fucking plugs in all the pulled out cords and shit and turns the resonator on somehow yeah you get a little bit of of tragedy because jeffrey coombs is like we did it we proved it we're done right and then the whatever cost scientist lady is like no we're we're gonna keep going because i'm a little turned on yeah i'm now a horn dog fuck machine the machine is making them all horny but jeffrey coombs and bubba brownlee are like it's time to go off we go but the lady is like, well, no, now I'm addicted to mad science. How about we decide all of this after we have a little nap? So they have a little nap, and she goes up and she turns the machine on again. And there's more practical effects. Uh, Jeffrey Coombs and Bubba Brownlee run down to the basement to try and cut the power manually. And there's a big wormy thing in the basement that eats Jeffrey Coombs and melts off his hair. But they manage to cut the power and then Jeffrey Coombs has a cool, like, yeah, they do. He falls out of midair because he was inside a worm, but now he has no body hair because <laughs> it all got burnt off by the yep. worm. And then his penal gland starts to come out through his head. Yep, because that's how that works. Because that's exactly where it is. It's definitely here and not here. <laughs> oh, damn it. Uh, people can't see. I was pointing to my forehead when it's not there. Stop pointing at your forehead, Brian. It's very reminiscent to Cronenberg's Rabbit. And I don't know, was Rabbit, I think Rabbit was before this. Rabbit was before this, for sure. It's gotta be. I'm just imagining the way the film looked in my head. Yeah, I think Rabbit is late 70s. And of course, Cronenberg and Stuart Gordon have got the whole uh, perverse body horror thing going on. Like, these two guys, these are the two guys at the back of the class if they were in the same class, drawn dicks, you know, they are. Yeah, like... yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> the, the the practical yeah. effects get very body horror Cronenberg for sure. I wish I had had a friend to draw dicks with in school. <laughs> I was just me by myself. <laughs> Jeffrey Combs is recovering after being eaten by this worm in the sex dungeon room. And Bubba Brownlee is for real. It's time to go. Bubba Brownlee comes in and is like, we got to get the fuck out of here. I'm done. I'm done. We're leaving. She also puts on bondage like the fourth dimensional horny juice has affected her so much that it gives Stuart Gordon an excuse to dress her up in bondage gear. And boy, <laughs> is it great. <laughs> 
Yeah, so Bubba Brownlee is like, hey, crazy doctor, you need to put some clothes on. So instead of, you know, putting normal clothes on, she goes into the sex dungeon closet um, and gets out a bunch of leather and studded stuff, puts that on, and starts uh, molesting a unconscious man. Which, that's the point where it stops being sexy <laughs> yeah jeffrey coombs is unconscious and yeah but then brother brownlee does interrupt it but isn't this the scene where this is brother brownlee's last bit right because the resonator gets turned on from the other side pretorius turns it on from the other side and Bubba brownlee dies in a big practical effect melty melty thing he gets eaten by he gets eaten by bugs trans-dimensional bugs yeah great great practical effect which felt very out of place like, everything else was body horror, and this was just, like, fucking interdimensional bugs. Well, I know what you mean. It felt it felt slightly different tone to the other stuff. But, yeah, it's all, it's all good. It's all good. The other things that were floating around were jellyfish and eels and ocean stuff. And it's like, oh, no, we're just doing a little, little smattering of bugs. I did like that Brother Brownlee was clearly still alive for a second or two after the, the bug attack. Yeah, because they eat him to the bones, right? Yeah, but I was so sad because he's me in this movie. That's That would be me. So, yeah. Sorry to see him go. He's the normal person that everyone can relate to. The other people are pervert scientists. Well, Jeffrey Coombs isn't so bad up until the point where his pineal gland gets aroused. Oh, right. They all wind up back at the hospital. The Italian hospital. They wind up at a hospital in Italy because it was cheaper to film there. And Stuart Gordon's wife has a turn as an, uh, another evil doctor from, from Pulp Fiction and goes, Clearly... This other doctor lady that I wasn't approved or didn't approve of, the only way to help her is uh, electroshock treatment. So, guys, strap her down to a table there. And so that that starts to happen. But then Jeffrey Coombs, I, he winds up eating Stuart Gordon's wife. Stuart Gordon's wife is um, trying to pull his pee out of his forehead. And, yeah, it's really gross because there's like a little thing moving around in his forehead hole, um, which... I don't know how that doesn't immediately get infected in gross, gross ways. She leaves the room and he wakes up and has some sort of super pee vision. Sort of like a, the Predator, mm. but for brains, because he starts walking out and he's like, oh, I'm so hungry or whatever, and walks into a room and everything's all infrared except for a purple thing in a bucket or whatever. He finds a brain in a bucket because that's a thing you can just find in hospitals. <laughs> so Stuart Gordon's wife comes back in. Jeffrey Combs sees her her brain through her skull and has that. A... He sucks. I think he sucks out her eyeball or something, right? It's like so delicious and rips her eye out and then sucks her brain out the eye hole and then uh, escapes. And then they go back to the tiny house, which we haven't mentioned yet. The outside of the house where all of this has been going on, they didn't have for whatever reason they didn't have a house that looks right. So they build a house that's like clearly, not clearly, it's clearly once it's pointed out to you, is much smaller. It's just the front of a house that they have behind a gate. And they do these shots where they start walking up to the tiny house and then they cut to the inside of some different house. So they all rush back to the tiny, tiny house. And we're like, why? Hmm. And it becomes clear towards the end. So they, it's all geared up for a final encounter with Dr. Pretorius kind of. Jeffrey Coombs ties up Dr. Lady to bondage gear and is going to eat her brain. 
But then in a disgusting scene, which is like kind of like, oh, you, you, you go, girl. She bites off his pee. His new pee zone. She bites off the big dongly thing coming out of his forehead. His dome dong. And she goes, yum, yum, yum. And she like rips out. And that returns Jeffrey Coombs to being somewhat normal. It's funny that, that again, the obvious, obvious, but the, the look of Slither owes a lot to the final monster in this thing. Yes. So the final monster is a big slimy pile of Dr. Pretor- Pretorius. Great. Some great practical effects in this. Uh, not great, just very entertaining practical effects. Yeah, creative for sure. Yeah, like it's like it's fun to think about them making these slimy models and stuff, you know? Yep. They have their face off and Pretorius turns into the bug monster. Why does the house blow up? Because the doctor lady comes back with a bomb. <laughs> That's why she goes back to the house. She has a bomb. You know, one of those, like, fucking cartoony, again, sticks of dynamite bombs. Yeah, this was the part of the film that actually bothered me the most. It was like, wait, where did she just get a cartoon bomb? But it's like, screw it, we're near the end of the film. She has a cartoon bomb. The final showdown is kind of neat. Dr. Pretorius eats Jeffrey Coombs. But then Jeffrey Coombs, inside this amoeba creature, asserts his personality. And that gives the lady enough time to escape. And she escapes by jumping out a window and it's it's grotesque because she hits the ground and her, her knee splits open. Yeah, her leg legs split open and compound fractures. I hate it. That was actually the only piece of gore in the entire thing that made me go, Ugh! Yeah, yeah, it was awful. It was awful. <laughs> yeah. Even though it was silly and fake looking. And then and then the tiny house blows up. They blow up the tiny house and that's the end of the that's the end of the movie. And she's left there. Like a Call of Cthulhu character. It ate him. It ate him. This is another example of ending a film like a film starts. Is because that's Jeffrey Coombs' line near the start of the movie. And then so this is the doctor lady's. She goes, it ate him. While she's standing near a like a burnt out house. With two leg bones sticking out of her legs. It's great. I mean, schlocky. Yeah, I mean, there's a through line with all of these three movies, which is, is it, is it schlock or shock or both? You know, Stuart Gordon was never a director I really cared about because of the, the schlockiness. But these movies are kind of fun, um, apart from some of the problems we spoke about. The third movie is, uh, is it Dagon or Dagon? How do you say it? Does it matter? I sometimes say Dagon. There's an easy way to um, figure this out because Dagon is a real... Uh, Syrian, ancient Syrian deity, so you can look up Dag... Da- oh, it's pronounced both ways. In the film, they were going for the Dagon, right, sort of cadence, right? They were really drawing it out. Dagon. Um, I suppose Dagon, this is the later H.P. Lovecraft one that he did, and again, I haven't read the uh, short story, so how faithful it is, I don't know, but for the uninitiated, it's probably the most palatable because it's pretty classic and gothic and has things in it that I like. And it reminded me very much of a movie I made called Shallow Depths, which of course is H.P. Love Lovecraft inspired anyway. But it's got a lot of things that feel more in the realm of classic horror. Um, and then the kind of watery God stuff, the Lovecraft stuff. So a yacht with four people is off the coast of Spain or Italy or someplace the yacht hits a rock, uh, someone is injured on board, our main protagonist goes ashore to get help, finds help in this run-down, creepy seaside village, uh, comes back with help, and the people on the boat are missing. Um, creepy things start to happen, and he starts to learn that the townspeople did a deal with an ancient 
water god or deity or dagon to yield a good harvest of fish and uh, but they've turned into kind of fish monster people and they have to do sacrifices so now there's, there's more detail than that but you know it's kind of for the uninitiated the, the pitch for this is a bit you know if you were pitching that it's like oh, stop you know this could be a del toro even a john carpenter horror movie um you know it's it's it doesn't feel as lovecrafty and we can get into the original story as some of the other things the top more the time and space stuff we've just gone through it ain't got a whole lot of that going on mm. well i the h lovecraft expert has said is feeling like piping up but so the other thing that was becoming in vogue in the 1920s was evolution right and so hp lovecraft's response to evolution was kind of this horror because hp lovecraft was a weird looking dude right and i think he had nervousness about his own bloodline and his own lineage and like dark things creeping around in his own lineage and he didn't have that weird of a lineage but the idea of evolution of things de-evolving of like being able to breathe with other creatures and stuff because every every creature ultimately came out of the sea originally his racist new england nervousness about things being in your bloodline that shouldn't be in your bloodline that combined with the, the emerging not the emerging science the emerging acceptance of evolution as scientific fact is kind of the where this story about fish people coming out of a sea and having sex with humans and creating these half human half fish creatures is coming from yeah and like and that's all very interesting but it's just the uh, trans-dimensional stuff ain't there oh yeah there's no extra dimensional stuff it's trans species not trans-dimensional this one a different branch of science he's been nervous about yeah. you know but as i said i think this one might have broader appeal for that reason just in terms of horror, the trans species thing is uh, not even really niche, you know? Well, it's not niche anymore, for sure. Anymore, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like our conversation about Nazis. Not niche anymore. Or we've done some trans species episodes before. We certainly have. On the off chance that anybody rushes off to read the short story because they're interested in the short story, this one is actually called Dagon because that's a short, snappy little title. But it's actually based on the escape from Innsmouth, largely. A uh, shadow over Innsmouth. Okay, not escape from Innsmouth. The shadow over Innsmouth. But the reason it's called Dagon is because the shadow over Innsmouth is a long-ass title to fit on a poster. And the fish people in the shadow over Innsmouth, I think it's mentioned somewhere that they worship Dagon because Dagon is like a big fish god. And he has a different short story called Dagon, which is, is also good. But just if you're reading Dagon, you're like, this isn't like the fucking thing at all. And it's because it's the, it's the shadow over Innsmouth you want to read if you want to get the source material on this. Unlike the other two stories, this this one is one of the more popular of the Lovecraft canon, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All the games are based off of it, um, both video and board. Well, it's much easier to base a game on this because the structure is a guy escape trying to escape from a town, you know? Investigating mystery and stuff. There were a lot of good horror moments, but it did feel kind of madcap wacky when a lot of it was him just kind of stumbling around through the town. Finding things. That kind of felt like it deflated it a little bit. That portion of the short story, in fairness, does also feel a bit madcap wacky, but that is a short part of the story. Whereas, like, I think in this, it's a long part of the film, you know? Yeah, it's an extended chase sequence, basically. The main guy who's knockoff uh, Jeffrey Combs exactly 
just glasses, hair color, build, everything exactly the same. Yeah, Jeffrey wasn't around that weekend. His wife disappears when they get to the town, so he's all trying to figure out why it's so weird, but he gets to a hotel. To be fair, a lot of this movie is sequentially the same as the short story. Yes. So he gets to a hotel, and the fish people that are not at this point, not so secretly, um, the citizens of this town, uh, try to bang down a door and like break into his um, hotel room. And in the short story, that's basically all the action. In this, he escapes, runs off into a factory where they make skin. The skin factory, they have like pig skin and people skin that they sew together to put on to not look like fish people or for their crazy Dagon rituals. Something. They have they have people skin on racks. One of his investors, right? He comes across one of his investors on the rack, the male investor. Then he meets um, one of the people that's not a fish person under drunk under a building or whatever in an alley that um, is the exposition wizard that says... Basically, the plot of the story where that Christian just went over almost verbatim. The fish harvests after they, you know, start worshipping or throw Jesus to the curb and start worshipping Dagon. Washes up a bunch of relics that they make a church out of. Then, yeah, they start killing people, turning into immortal fish men and women. Yes, yeah, so in the short story, these people aren't turning into fish people i mean they do the descendants do but they got the fish and they got the money but part of the deal was in the short story i'm not sure how explicit it was in the film or did it get across the idea fish people then came out of the sea and it's very like the um oh that terrible david cronenberg film what's what's it called not cronenberg the roger corman humanoids from the deep yes humanoids from the deep imagine humanoids from the deep but half of the townspeople are cooperating with the fish people and are like this is the way it's gotta be so all of those fish people in Innsmouth are like the second generation fish people. They're all the result of fish guys raping women. And in the short story, and men, like they mentioned that like men, like men, the fish women also rape. Yeah, there's interbreeding. Yeah, there's like interbreeding. And the townspeople who didn't want to go along with it were either killed off or they um, were like the the guy the drunk guy they were just they were made subservient made subservient and so basically this town it's not like a magic ritual and you turn into a fish people it's the direct result of interbreeding and then these children who look relatively human as they age they get more and more fishy and then at some point in the short story they go back into the sea to be immortal to be immortal forever with dagon and this is where we'll, we'll get into like the weird philosophical stuff because daddy d <laughs> immortal with daddy d there's no other characters in the short story it's just the dude and it's hinted at like oh he's going to innsmouth to investigate some genealogical stuff and that's like this the, the the hint the foreshadowing of what's to come you know but in this, it's like, I don't know how, wh why he wound up off the coast of that place. I think they were just on vacation and it's destiny, circumstance, what what have you. Calling him back, yeah. The genealogical stuff doesn't really, it's not as big of a deal. He is seeing visions of this young woman that he keeps seeing. and Yeah, he sees Zendaya standing on a sand dune. There are hints that they plant. Yeah, so he's running through, being chased through the town, gets to a mansion, and the woman from his vision is there in a bed 
recognizes him. Stay with me. They stare uncomfortably into each other's eyes. Uh, he rips off the covers and she's got tentacle legs. I did like the tentacle legs because they could have easily gone with some mermaid crap. But like having a pair of tentacle legs is funnier and more interesting looking, I think. It was way funnier. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so he fucking runs off. Because he's not into it. Can't handle that. Yeah, Lagan wouldn't have run off. Yeah. Which is, I mean, <laughs> real fucking body shaming there. Like, seriously, she can't help that she was born with tentacle legs. You got to fish man up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he gets recaptured. The drunk guy and his wife and the female investor are still there. And th- this is where things get kind of kind of creepy because the female investor lady is trying to explain that she got raped by a giant fish monster and the the drunken guy is kind of being jokey about it i'm like oh dude this is kind of tasteless but the, and then the the investor lady kills herself instead of like giving birth to this or going around being pregnant with this fish monster you know with daddy d's little d that's the main difference i think between the short story and not well there's lots of differences but one of them is all the kids in this place, I think, are supposed to be the children of Daddy D. Whereas in the short story, it's just like individual fishmen. But I think it's like everyone here is the progeny of Daddy D, you know? Or at least if they have a particular fishman that they were born from, they still consider themselves to be the children of Dagon. Yeah. Because I think there is one fishman that both uh, the young woman and the main guy, ref- like, he sired them or whatever. That's true. As a scion of Dagon or, or something. The guy who turns out to be the father of Standin Jeffrey Coombs and Tentacle Legs, he is a fish guy. And that is another difference because in the H.P. Lovecraft version, he would still be human, you know? But in this version, hmm. he's basically turned into a guy doing really cool Cthulhu cosplay. You know, he's a mind flight. He, he looks like a like a little human-sized Cthulhu wearing a seaman's costume. In the Lovecraft version, there was no mechanism for him to transform. Is like you have to be born to these things, you know. Yeah. Also, there wasn't a secret underground temple or whatever. Jeff, knock off Jeffrey Coombs and the crazy drunk guy are getting tortured by some Dagon priests. Again, the whole true line of shock value we have. Yeah, the, the, the live skinning of Drunk Man. But the the next shock value thing that is that happens is because in also that scene, fish tentacle legs wheels herself in. I kind of thought it was neat that she was in a wheelchair because it's like, oh, we have disabled representation amongst horrible monsters, you know? Mm-hmm. She wheels herself in and she's like, yo, be with me. And he's like, no. And she goes off in a rage. And she's like, I don't care. Skin him, you know. And then that like lines up. That gives the reason for the next horrible shock value thing. They skin that drunk guy. And then somehow Jeffrey Coombs gets loose. I can't remember how. And Jeffrey Coombs then fucks up a bunch of fish guys. Yeah, it's just fisticuffs. With knives and fire. Yep. Real action star. And then he races to the underground temple to rescue his wife wheelchair tentacle legs is torturing his wife she's naked and she's like hitting hurting her with a whip or a flail or something she's gonna be the sacrifice to dagon because it's been a minute since dagon got his daddy d wed but i think she's just getting extra whipped because tentacle legs is jealous tentacle legs is jealous so not only are we going to sacrifice you to dagon but i'm going to whip you 
and that way Stuart Gordon can film a naked yet again another naked tied up lady getting tortured because that seems to be a a thing that Stuart Gordon likes to film. I don't know, man. Yeah, I know, but it was very reminiscent of a scene in um, Lair of the White World. It's basically the same scene. Now you can see where my weird boners come from <laughs> watching these movies. Go on, describe your weird boners. It's like, oh, this is awakening something until it's like, you know, gets to the sexual assault part. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> once consent's out the picture, then it's just flaccid. Then you just have to allow yourself, Brian. Just consent to yourself and off you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Gross, gross, gross. Let's, let's, let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. <laughs> there was a part earlier in the film where knockoff Jeffrey Coombs' wife lady said, if that happens to me because they have an investor's wife, you got to promise to kill me, which is horrific and has no payoff. So they lower the lady down into Dagon in down a big well while Jeffrey Coombs is setting fire to people and running. Not Jeffrey Coombs is running, running around setting fire to people. <laughs> and then she gets hauled up and she's all she's naked and now covered in black slime. And you're thankfully we don't actually get to see what Dagon does to her. So Je Stuart Gordon showed a little bit of restraint in this film, you know. And um, but then she's like, "Kill me, kill me now! You promised." And then, knockoff Jeffrey Coombs can't because he's like a weak, crappy character. And then, Lake Dagan, Lagan comes up and wraps tentacle around her and wrap pulls and bites her in half, which is weird because you're like, "Oh, I thought he was using these people for breeding. Why is he just he's just eating this random lady?" You don't know how Lagans breed. <laughs> so then the lady then explains the shock thing that they're half brothers and that the marsh guy is still alive and that they're they're half siblings but we're going to live forever with dagon and i can't remember is it just that his brain breaks with the news and the visions he's like oh no this like this was already decided for me this was my fate all along to become a child of dagon yeah he sets himself on fire he's been doing action things the whole time but you know he he couldn't kill his girlfriend and this is very much like a this is quite the move but where it comes from it doesn't come out of nowhere although you wouldn't know that without having read hp lovecraft so like i said hp lovecraft's other hang up fear was secret dark things hanging around in his lineage there is another short story he wrote called the curious case of author germine or something like that and it's basically a story about a guy who finds out that his in his lineage there's like a white ape from Africa that one of his ancestors went off and had sex with a monkey. An author, Jeremiah, who's like this sensitive artist type, he learns this eventually and he goes nuts and he sets himself on fire. But it's just, it's another story about H.P. Lovecraft's other hang-up, the dark lineage. And so it's like Stuart Gordon is just ripping that one little bit because... In The Shadow of Innsmouth, the guy realizes his secret lineage and he's immediately on board. He's like, oh, I, I have a secret lineage? Awesome. Well, he goes crazy. Oh, yeah, I guess he's on board because he's gone insane. Because it's him narrating the story, his past story. So while he's talking about how he's discovered his lineage, in the end paragraph, he starts getting like violent and stuff and being like no fuck you we will go back to dagon how dare you insult my lineage or whatever the end of the story is his mental transition into becoming a child of dagon 
Which is way better than this. Yeah, he's he sets himself on fire and because it looks cool, it's another visual, and then he jumps in the water. No, no, Tentacle Legs tackles him into the water to save him. He's like, no, my faded. But then his, it's almost like the fact that his skin was all... They did show, I noticed at the very start of the film, there was a part where he was in bed and he had the faint outline on the side of his body of the gills. And, but it was very subtle. And then it was when he goes into the fire and his outer layer of skin has been burnt off or whatever, I guess, the gills start working. And then him and tentacle legs swim off into the sea. For eternity as a burn victim and Ursula. I wish them the best, Mazel Tov. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth short story is way more racist, like overtly racist about, you know, black people and people from the Pacific Islands. It's uncomfortable. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft's story was racist. I'm only learning this now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, in case anybody like wants to go check it out, it it is very blatantly racist at a couple of points. There's a Lovecraft story called The Moon Bog, where he's racist towards Irish people as well. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's so fucking... Yeah. <laughs> if you're reading anything 100 years old, I mean, it's like, yeah. It's... Yeah, it's to be expected, but... It's fucking insane, though. Oh, no, no. Okay, so people make this excuse for Lovecraft that he was racist. He's, you know, and it is true his racism was more acceptable at the time. But even by the time, people was like, hey, Lovecraft, you might want to chill out. I know, but the point I'm making, the, the, the warning is kind of just apply that to anything that's 100 years old. There might be something in here that is not okay. I mean... Yeah, yeah, also true. All right, the final push. Watch Reanimator with your friends. If you've seen Reanimator, you don't really need to see From Beyond. That's kind of the same thing again. Uh, Dagon, uh, pass. That was very quick, Dagon. Nice. I liked it. Snappy. I would mostly agree. Watch Reanimator with your friends. You can watch From Beyond with your friends. Dagon, you can can probably flush it. I mean, it's, it's fine. I like it, but you don't have to waste your time on it. But as far as Lovecraft movies go, these are way far ahead of most other Lovecraft-based movies. That's true. We should mention, like, they're way more watchable than a lot of the shit that says, inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's whatever. My final push, hard to know with Reanimator because it depends who your friends are. And as I said, when we were talking about Reanimator, there's stuff in here that just might not be okay. So I think I'm going to flush Reanimator um from beyond is a bit more acceptable with regard to that stuff kind of and i enjoyed the practical effects more in from beyond there's just more of them and some of the optical effects are great fun so watch with friends dagon i'm not going to flush dagon either i'm going to say watch by yourself because i could see dagon with a director like del toro or somebody being remade as a big legitimate horror movie it's broad enough and big enough um to to work uh the budget went against it because some of the effects are dreadful but uh, i could see dagon being an accessible mainstream horror movie uh, with a different director um so yeah you can maybe watch it by yourself dagon is definitely the weakest out of the three but i would say both dagon and from beyond are like maybe watch with friends i would say reanimator is big enough in like if you're trying to fill out your horror Mm. lexicon essentials it's entertaining enough to have fun watching it by yourself i think so but i i also like if you you know if you and your friends have discussed the things and you don't have anyone in the room that will freak out 
then Reanimator is also probably okay to watch with friends. But it's good enough to watch by yourself. I gotta go. I'm late for class at Miskatonic University. <laughs> the name—that's the name of a thing from the thing. Woo! <laughs>